Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Jody Dean, making her 12th appearance in Behind the News to discuss her new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging just published by Verso. We've got a bit of spare time here, so I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while, a little economic commentary. A lot of people, from specialists to civilians, have been worrying more about an imminent recession, though the tweeter-in-chief dismisses these concerns as fake news. He would, of course. These anxieties may be getting a little ahead of themselves. The usual leading indicators are not sounding alarms yet. But there's no doubt that economic momentum, which has never been mighty since the end of the Great Recession in 2009, and wasn't all that great in the mid-2000s expansion either, is slowing. GDP growth has averaged just 2.3% a year in this expansion, half the average of post-World War II upturns. This quarter looks to be coming in around 2%. This says nothing about how this slowly growing aggregate is produced or distributed and at what cost to humans and nature, but it is the system's favorite indicator. Employment growth, which is what matters to the working class, is also slowing. Remarkably, though September saw the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, there is no growth in average hourly wages. That's not supposed to happen. And it's not just the U.S. Growth is slowing around the world for many reasons. Trump's trade war, the absence of great technological innovations, heavy debts, maldistribution, the cynical greed of capitalists who would rather loot than invest, etc., etc. Many people on the left are predicting that this will be a bloodbath of a recession, maybe worse in 2008-2009. Maybe. I don't know, and no one else does, really. But if you're looking for something to worry about, I'm here to help. It's corporate debt. U.S. households have been cutting their debt levels ever since things fell apart a decade ago, but not so the sector called non-financial corporations, the firms that produce the goods and services that are supposed to satisfy our real needs. Compared with GDP, which is the best way to do these things over the long term, the debt of non-financial corporations is at a record high, beating the previous record set a little into the 2008-2009 recession. In a foretaste of what may be to come, Bloomberg reports that $40 billion in leveraged loans, a fancy term for bank loans to low-quality, highly indebted companies, quote, are staging their own private meltdown, close quote. Credits tied to more than 50 companies have been hammered over the last few months, and the list is poised to expand as both lenders and rating agencies, this is another quote from Bloomberg, lose patience amid the slowing economy with borrowers that took on mountains of debt to fund private equity buyouts, dividends, and other transactions that didn't improve earnings, close quote. Little of that borrowing is used to fund investment in real things. This is not just an American problem by any means. Canada, China, and France have added a lot of corporate debt to already hefty levels over the last decade. A couple of weeks ago, in her inaugural speech as managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva said, Our new analysis shows that if a major downturn occurs, corporate debt at risk of default would rise to $19 trillion, or nearly 40% of the total debt in eight major economies. This is above the levels seen during the financial crisis. This is not reassuring. If the next recession gets ugly, non-financial corporate debt might be a leading culprit. And now Jody Dean. Jody Dean teaches political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. She's a prolific author with over 10 books to her name and a speaker on topics ranging from political thought to psychoanalysis to communications theory. Complex topics all addressed deftly and clearly and with a deep humanity. Her last three books, The Communist Horizon from 2012, Crowds and Party from 2016, and now the freshly published Comrade, have formed an unintentional trilogy. The first was an evocation of what a better future might look like, not so much in the sense of a concrete goal, but as a way of organizing our aspirations. The second is a study of the importance of the party form in getting to that better future. And the third is an examination of what kinds of social relations are necessary to make that better future possible. Some, perhaps most people, might find these concepts obsolete, but as Jody argues, and I agree, this sense of obsolescence is a function of the victory of capitalism and the defeat of the left we've experienced over the last 40 or so years. Now that we're seeing a serious revival of left politics and the rehabilitation of the concept of socialism, reviving these concepts would give the movements some serious force. But don't take my word for it. Here's Jody Dean to explain. I don't know if you intended these last three books as a trilogy, but they sort of work that way. We have the uh, the communist horizon as the goal, um, the the party as the means of getting there, and the comrade as the constituent of the party. Let's talk a bit about each of these in turn. The communist horizon, for people who haven't read the book or didn't listen to the interview about the book, what do you mean by that term? I'm really happy to be talking about these all together, and I didn't have it in mind 
when I started writing them that there would be a trilogy. But it was the case that the second and third books flowed directly from the premises of the one before it. So it's great to talk about them together. So the um, Communist Horizon, my basic thought there was to present the horizon not as this temporal goal that we never, ever reach, but to recognize that spatially the horizon is the dividing line that orients us. So if we're outside and we look into the distance and we see the place where earth and sky meet, that gives us our orientation in space. So it's the fundamental division orienting where we are. And so the communist horizon then is an idea that, look, first of all, it's not that we got to some kind of end of history with the um, defeat of the Soviet Union and the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. In fact, what we've got is a really horrifying, intensified global capitalism, which means that communism is still on the table, right? The overcoming of capitalism is still our task. So the horizon that orients us then is a communist horizon. And that, and then further, the, the importance of this is that there has to be something that orients left politics, right? It can't just be like a capitalism with a human face or a kinder, gentler neoliberalism, right? This is, we know that both of those things are fictions and lies and lies that are in the service of their continued exploitation and miseration and extraction. So orienting um, our politics towards a communist horizon is crucial for left political struggle. So that's that's how to think about um, the communist horizon, right? Communism as the goal of left politics. Now, how much content is there in this idea of communism, or is it some sort of amorphous goal? Marx famously had a reticence about speaking what you know, the future would look like, and uh, a lot of writers in the, the Marxist tradition have been similarly reticent. Uh, how do you feel about that? I think that he's not providing recipes for the cookshops of the future. Like, that seems exactly right. However, he provides some really nice principled versions so that we, for, uh, to orient us around communism. So my favorite is from each according to ability to each according to need. Some others like the free development of each compatible with the free development of all. But both of these give us versions of society that are based on egalitarian suppositions and views of production for common benefit and the meeting of needs rather than production for the sake of capital accumulation of the few. So exactly what does this look like? Is this a giant global state? Is it a federal system of communes? Those are kinds of the, the recipes that we don't know in advance. But do we know that production needs to be based on need rather than um, the private accumulation of the few? That seems pretty clear. The party as the means of getting there. I, uh, certainly a lot of people uh, stumble over that term. Well, they also stumble over the term communism. So, you know, you're picking two very loaded words here. And, of course, comrade uh, sometimes seems like something exhumed from a crypt. So you know, we, you're re trying to re rehabilitate a lot of concepts that uh, a lot of people on the contemporary left or outside the contemporary left find um, strange, to say the least. Um, so this, this party, you know, people are very disturbed by the idea of a party. They're okay with organizations, maybe, um, but uh, in this time of individual exuberance and uh, suspicion of hierarchies and organizations, perhaps it's not quite as severe as it was a few years ago, but still, uh, there is this, these lingering suspicions. What does this party look like? First, I, I want to address these suspicions. I think these suspicions are products of the victory or temporary victory or hegemony of capitalism right now. The left should not embrace the suspicions that the bourgeoisie have. The bourgeoisie has always been um, suspicious of communism. So that there is a skepticism, I think we need to assign that properly to our capitalist enemies. And on the left then, so because it's not just it's not just you know, our capitalist enemies who are against the party. The left has been critical of the party since even before the left politics was organized in party. You always have, you have even in the um, early days of the International Working Men's Association, Bakunin and Marx disagreeing on the ways to organize the struggle. And there's concern about hierarchy. Um, there's concern about a kind of distance between the people being organized and the actual organizers. These are real issues that the left has had to deal with for over 100 years, let's say 200 years. At the same time, when we look at 
the power of the far right today, like if we think about Brazil, the United States, um, half the countries of Europe, how did they get there? Did they get there by autonomous art production and community gardens? No, they got there by using political parties to take power in a state. Right. So the left doesn't do this. And what happens? Oh, guess what? We don't have political power in a state. We've got to stop with this kind of fiction that we can, you know, save the world without taking power and recognize that the kinds of problems that are global these days have to be addressed at global and state levels. And that to be able to address them, we have to take power in those at those levels. So I think that um, that there's this kind of like left, you know, you can call it the beautiful soul. You can call it left aversion for power. It's a kind of left failure to think through what's necessary to realize the goals that we need to have as a left. You write about the party, but there are in practice many parties, uh, often uh, who spend a lot of time criticizing each other rather than the bourgeoisie. Um, so how do we get yeah. from many to one, to paraphrase the motto of our country? I emphasize the party because I'm really trying to get folks on the left to think more seriously and critically about the form of our struggles, about the form that we need to use if we are going to defeat the enemy and produce a better world. But there's another reason is that I'm trying to invoke a kind of romantic figure of the Communist Party, right? The Communist Party from the first half of the 20th century as a carrier of emancipatory egalitarian aspirations, a carrier for global liberation struggle, and that we can then see the specific instantiations of that party in different national parties, different national communist parties as they try to do it. Now today, yeah, we don't have that milieu. Like that's things look pretty different. In the US, we have two awful capitalist mainstream parties and a decreasing number of smaller left parties. And I would hope that the leftist, um, that leftists now, as we facing up to the seriousness of the challenges that, you know, that we're um, encountering, will choose some of the small left parties and try to make them the parties that we need. The popularity of DSA is important here. That We wouldn't have imagined this five years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you about how DSA fits into this party model. My understanding is that DSA doesn't think of itself exactly as a party, right? It's, it's, There's a substantial number who think of themselves as a pre-party formation. So but that's I not think, that's not a universal uh, belief. So it would be it would be very interesting to see how DSA continues to unfold. And um, it's interesting as a socialist formation that is um, right now, I, if I understand, it holds several different tendencies within it. It allows for kind of organized factions and this does not require a kind of super heavy duty, hardcore commitment to a line. Is that is that true? That, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. I have a lot of confidence in the Leninist model. We've seen that historically be really effective in taking power. But I think that what happens is that has to happen through struggle, right? We'll see it happen through struggle. It's not like you decide in advance, oh, here's the one party and then nobody follows it, right? Even like the Bolsheviks didn't know they were going to be the, the the winning Bolsheviks even at the beginning of 1917. So the party will be giving rise to itself through struggle. That Leninist model, what precisely does that mean in the United States of 2019 to take a model that was developed in early 20th century Russia? What does that mean in early 21st century United States? It means that a sense of party unity can still matter, that in particularly in a social media age where folks spend countless hours arguing with each other and nitpicking over all sorts of different things with no mind towards are we trying to achieve a common goal and are we just attacking each other for the sake of our own egoistic gratification, that's an error on the left. And so a Leninist model that is a democratic centralist model that values party unity is a kind of nice remedy for some of these worst tendencies in sort of social media backstabbing. There does seem to be a lingering influence of hippie 60s sensibility of do your own thing uh, on the left. And that's very antithetical to that model of party discipline. And you would argue, of course, that's part of the problem. Exactly right. Yeah, definitely. 
I'm speaking with Jody Dean, author of Comrade, just out from Verso. Okay, so this sort of is a nice segue into the Comrade, who is the, I would think, the constituent uh, of the party, the component of the party. What exactly do you mean by a Comrade? In the book, I theorize the figure of the Comrade in three basic ways. Right? So Comrade is a term of address. It's a figure of political belonging, and it's a carrier of expectations for action. So what's really important to me, like theoretically, is that people don't think of the comrade as the or a political subject. That's not what it is. It's not a political subject. It's a figure of political relation. And what I what I think is super interesting about the figure of the comrade is like nobody can be a comrade alone, right? It's not like a militant. Someone can be a militant all by themselves. But comrade is always already a relational figure. You're comrades with others. That's one of the things that's sort of great about the comrade figure. So it's a term of address. We hail each other as comrades. We address one another as comrades. And when we do that, that means we have a certain set of expectations of each other in ways that we don't, let's say, you know, in our social media left, like, you know, we don't really have any strong expectations of others other than that, oh, they'll likely diss me no matter what I say. It's interesting to find that Whitman had an influence in the adoption of, of the term comrade in, uh, on the socialist left. You know, his um, Leaves of Grass and these, what are the, the Calamus poems, um, have these kind of gorgeous um, figurings of comrade. And what I really like about it is the explicit homoeroticism. And one of the reasons that that's so, so compelling is it lets us see a model of attachment that sort of spreads further than a heterosexual family structure. It spreads further than simply something like comrades in arms and brings with it admiration and attachment, maybe even a bit of an erotics. You know, in Chinese, the term for comrade is tongji, which is also used in the gay male culture to refer to other gay men, right? So tongji in Chinese also means queer, right? They've got this kind of double meaning of a, to call someone comrade is also a, a kind of identifying them as, you know, a queer guy, a gay man. Um, and it's a, it's a good term, right? It's a popular, happy term. Susie Bright once said to me that workers of the world unite is an erotic sentiment. Yeah, absolutely right, because there's a degree of joy in it and discipline in it and expectation in it that gives us something that's that you can't get kind of by yourself and you can't get in any of our versions of, say, mass politics with these mass parties. No one would say that being members of de- being Democrats or Republicans gives you anything like comradeship, any kind of mode of political belonging towards other people in a strong or fulfilling sense. The comrade, though, is a different relationship from friend or lover or family, right? Yes. So when I started working on this book, I, you know, of course, like doing the scholarly library thing and, and trying to look for all the other sources on it. And what's so wild is that there has been no political theory writing on the comrade as a primary figure, right? So we've got, in the history of political ideas, folks write about the prince or kings. They write about, um, Carl Schmitt wrote about the dictator and the partisan. Aristotle wrote about friends and friendship, and Derrida picked up on that. But nobody has written anything systematic or analytical about the comrades. So what I started to do then was try to um, distinguish between the comrade and these other modes are forms of belonging or forms of association. So you can distinguish between the comrade and the friend, between comrades and kin, between comrades and citizen. It's not a friend, it's not a family member, not a neighbor and not a citizen, right? It's a really distinct mode from those other four. How is it different from citizen? The French Revolution was all about citizen. The primary difference is that comradeship is not mediated by the state. And the citizen relation is mediated by the state, right? You are a citizen within a particular state. Comradeship, I'm mostly interested in as members of a party, but these parties go beyond state boundaries. Interestingly, too, states tend to be very, very skeptical and nervous about people whose primary political attachment is to a party, right? Thinking of them often as traitors or as brainwashed and skeptical that they are not properly patriotic. So we know from states' own skepticism about communist and socialist parties that they don't think of the of comrades and citizens as the same. So that's one angle. But, it, but the other angle is the difference between a model of political belonging that presumes a state and one that presumes a party. 
Let's contrast the idea of a comrade with some other ideas on the left. You quote um, a former uh, CPR, David Ross, uh, as characterizing um, a certain style of politics as diffused consciousness linked to personal integrity. And that characterizes a lot of thinking on the left today, doesn't it? Yeah. Too often we think about our we on the left, particularly we on the left who write and talk a lot you know, about politics. We think of our politics as things that we stand by and like I will take my position and I will tell others what my position is and that's what makes me a political person so it's almost like a kind of of moral performance and it can be real like people have their real principles but it's not concentrated into a political form that gives it power and efficacy it's diffuse as um, multiple independent individual statements. And we can make statements, you know, until the cows come home, and that doesn't change anything politically. Yeah, well, it seems like uh, you know, on a place like Facebook, you're supposed to uh, perform ritual denunciations of Trump every morning uh, just to prove that you're um, on the right side of things. That doesn't amount to a hill of beans, really. No, uh, and also, it just it also makes me think, it's like, I, I can't really stand watching evening news I- anymore, or news, what, what, whatever it is that, that we have on CNN and MSNBC in the evenings, because it's this ritual, um, ritual performance, ritual announcing of the horrors of the day, and there's not a, an analysis, it's more, it's always this political performance. I wonder if we should think about it as a performance of defeat. Because it doesn't seem like it's these are analyses that are designed to either enlighten or inspire, but more just like kind of remind people of their misery. Yeah, well, there's also a link to the call-out culture. I've been denounced now as a, a member of the pro-Trump left because I'm skeptical about the what? utility of impeachment. Well, one, that's a crazy denunciation. It's also, I think, a really, really important point. Um, I would, I'm with you on that, Doug. Do we really think that the Senate is going to convict him or find him guilty of anything and remove him from office? No, I don't think anybody thinks that that's an end game here. So what's happening? What's the performance that's going on? It seems like these are, um, no, it doesn't seem it is the case that these are, you know, capitalist elites who are fighting among themselves rather than addressing the unbelievably pressing issues that we face right now, primarily around climate change. Back to some of these more debased concepts that uh, circulate now. (laughs) Uh, There's the ally and allyship and all the discourse around that. What about that? Yeah, so that's actually one of my primary themes in the beginning of the book. One of my primary goals in writing, Comrade, was to give people on the left another way of thinking about political belonging that's not allyship. As you were suggesting, allyship is really strong among contemporary, let's say, contemporary progressives. Um, We see this a ton on college and university campuses. We see it a lot in the kind of world of NGOs or, you know, the NGO progressive left. And we see it a lot on social media. What you see it so much on social media are these things where people are told how to be a good ally. And you get these lists of best ways to be an ally or guides for allyship. What's so wild about these is how do they present the ally, right? How how do they presuppose the ally? Like one might think that allies are just a diverse set of people trying to come together to pursue a common politics. But that's never the case in ally discussions. It's presented as there is a privileged person who is trying to go beyond their own identity categories and help or show solidarity with people who do not occupy those same privileged identity categories. So already you have this sense of there are politics that are associated with identities, and these politics are kind of carefully hoarded and and guarded like little possessions. If your identity is not the same as someone else's, then you've got to be very careful about not stepping on their toes, right? So there's no version of all of us on a political side are opposed to uh, white supremacy and racism. All of us on a political side are opposed to homophobia, transphobia, patriarchy. All of us are opposed to bigotry in the largest sense. So you don't have that. You have politics as a kind of individual possession. And then the ally is someone 
who is going to always be perpetually striving and wrong. Now, there's also good reasons for, to think that about an ally, because usually the guides to allyship are th- the, the ally is presented as someone too who um who wants to do things right now. Like, what can I do to change things right now? And it's like me. What do I do? Not how do we build something together, and how do I do it right now? Like the time frame is always really like you know what can you do right now to help X rather than how do we address these huge structural problems by, I don't know, overturning capitalism and seizing the state. That was the first part of my interview with Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and author of Comrade, an essay on political belonging just out from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. was some of the first movement of Shostakovich's String Quartet No. 11, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. And now part two of my interview with Jody Dean, author of Comrade, an essay on political belonging just out from Verso. Yeah, these concepts of identity that you're talking about are very firmly bounded and make impossible any kind of solidarity across those boundaries. Exactly right. Identity is bounded. I mean, what what we need to see, and I actually think this other realization is present on the left, namely that identities are are loci of struggle. They are fields of struggle. They're not clear and certain, cherished little possession. They're sites, they're sites and fields of struggle. Once people start to hold on to the fact that they actually know this, then maybe they can move away from this supposition of allyship as the political form and move to something stronger like comrades. Like, like, like if we also think like, what do allies expect of one another? That's completely unclear, right, in all of the ally stuff. You should expect disappointment, it seems. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Disappointment, the allies will let us down. It's like a psychological or moral attitude, right? It's all a kind of interior, if I'm a good ally, I will express sympathy or I will not say mean things. But even that, we will always say something wrong in the ally world. And one of the reasons we'll also ally, always say something wrong in ally world is you're told as an ally, don't ask oppressed people to explain things to you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, I'm not here to do the work for you. Educate yourself. Google it. Yeah, Google it. There's all sorts of crazy things you can find on the internet. <laughs> I mean, what does that even mean? Like, like what is the, the correct way to be? It's the absence of a sense of we have a common set of goals, a common struggle, a common analysis. And it just repeats over and over. Google it. Well, anything is out there. Find out for yourself. Well, find out what? Now the acquisition of knowledge is is turned into a consumer item where you individualistically consume something called information. Uh, It's not a dialogical or a collective process of discovery. Not at all. In fact, it's like that seems what's really cut off with the line, don't ask the oppressed to explain it to you. I should be clear on this. There's really good reasons that people who have experienced different forms of oppression get tired of explaining it over and over. I mean, I got to say, I how many times a day on Facebook do I see something and I'm just kind of like, God, do I have to tell this mansplainer again, like why their comments are so freaking annoying? Like, that's just ridiculous. It's exhausting. So there is a reality that needs to be acknowledged and respected and not kind of thrown under the bus about this expression, this feeling of exhaustion. But there's another way to deal with it besides just Google it, which is namely, here are a set of ideas and reasons and text or even a set of 
of videos that we share as a group or let's say as a tradition that can help you if you want to be part of a left struggle, know what the arguments are, know what the view is, right? So there's another, and that would be the mode of comradeship, right? Because comrades are relations of political belonging, people on the same side of a struggle. So they know what their side says, right? They have a political tradition. And you also uh, write something about the survivor identity. It's almost as if people get attached to a status as a survivor, uh, so attached that they're um, less willing to confront the system that injured them. Yeah, this theme of the problem of the survivor as a as a dominant mode is one of the carryovers from crowds and party to comrade. I'm, I remain really concerned with the survivor as a left figure. If we can think about that too, like the way that a, a politics of survival has now become a a kind of primary thing. Like I think it's affiliated with discourses around precarity and vulnerability. And you hear it expressed with things like, my survival is itself a political act. I'm not convinced that that mere survivability is a political act. I actually don't think it is. Because then it would be like, well, why is this survival political? And that one is not. And once you start saying why it is, then you actually point to the political element, which isn't just the survivability, right? You have to add in the politics. This first level is we see so much on the left right now, this just survival by itself is enough of a politics. And I think we've got to reject that, right? It reminds me of that Freud essay, uh, remembering, repeating, and working through. We have the remembering and the repeating, but not the working through, it seems. Yeah, that's, oh, I hadn't thought of that, Doug. I like that a lot. I mean, I wonder that maybe the relation of comradeship is a relation for that kind of working through, and the party is a form that structures, that gives structure to that kind of working through. That would be a cool, I, I want to keep thinking about that. I like that idea. But uh, one more thing back on the survivor. One of the, the things that, that's also important for thinking about the limits of survival and survivability and the figure of the survivor is it becomes this loner view, right? This isolated person view. So there's, it's like the survivor persists under conditions that they have no ability to impact. So you've got these massive systems that are kind of assumed to keep going unaffected by any kind of human action. So there's, it's utterly depoliticizing, right? A politics of survival just means a kind of individual persistence that lets the, the system go on unchanged and unaffected. But we've got to bring back the political struggle, right? The sense of being on a side. There seems to be a a trend in in contemporary feminism uh, to focus on misogyny and locate it in the realm of the individual as a prejudice, but also seems timeless, this misogyny, that there's just this deep fundamental hatred of women by men. And it's as if you can't really do anything about it. Yeah, and I think that goes also with some of the um, Afro-pessimist views that we see in forms of Afro-pessimism, the hatred of the black as an ontology of the West. Back in the 80s and 90s, we would have called these essentialisms. And we're seeing these take on a new hold today, maybe because of, of the seeming intractability of political problems, or maybe because a sense of under neoliberalism, the loss of a political space or a space of struggle. But but on the other hand, the happy part is, is that the rise of socialism that we're seeing now is actually returning political struggle to the forefront. Okay, now let's put some more flesh on the comrade. There is a critique that the notion is saturated with some you know, traditional old masculinist and white supremacist idea that the, uh, the comrade is a white man. You um, argue at some length against those ideas. Uh, why is it wrong? It's just completely ahistorical. It's like, oh, what they've never, about all of the women and people of color all over the world who have been comrades, who have been like fierce communist fighters. So it's part of this forgetting of the legacies of just hardcore revolutionary communist struggle globally that's part of um, the legacy of anti-communism and the defeats of, of, of 89 and the defeated the Soviet Union, right? So, you know, one of these chapters in Comrade really tries to resuscitate and bring back the knowledge that we should have of the um, revolutionary role of communist women and of the fierceness of anti-imperialist and anti-racist struggle and the kind of multiracial character of communist struggle, primarily in the 20th century. 
You write some length about the fights over race within the CP, and for a predominantly white organization, it did an awful lot in very unfavorable circumstances to uh, fight racism within its own ranks. There's a lot to be admired there that's completely forgotten in the caricature, even on the left, of what the CP was all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I um, rely heavily on the work of a number of historians. One of the most well-known is Robin D.G. Kelly, who's done really important work on the role of the Communist Party and um, anti-racist struggle in the U.S. He's got a very famous book, Hammer and Ho, on black communists in Alabama during the Depression. But what's so strange to me is that even with this important work from historians, a number um, of African-American historians, is that it's hard for it to remain in the imaginary of the U.S. left. Like you just said, it keeps getting forgotten. But the Communist Party did. I mean, they led the struggle on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys, who were the young African-American men accused of raping two white women. They led the struggle in their behalf. um, One of the things I talk about in the book is this famous show trial they had in Harlem in 1930. People think of show trial and they think it's bad, but this was great, right? This was this kind of like a mass performance with over a thousand people where the party was demonstrating its commitment to fighting against Jim Crow and lynch law and racism. But this wasn't just in the public sphere. This was in in interpersonal relationships among party members. Oh, yeah. The CP really emphasized that members in their everyday life had to act in a egalitarian and in a way that was informed by social equality. And so in this show trial, They are expelling a member who did not welcome African-American workers to a party at the Finnish club, you know, a party for Finnish workers. And um, his name was August Jokinen, and they expelled him for this. But the other great thing, though, is that his expulsion, they also let him come back after he commits to fighting against racism and white chauvinism and selling the black newspaper. To be a comrade requires a shedding of individuality. There's something almost generic about the comrade. Yeah, this is the part that I get, I'm I'm tending to get the most pushback for. But I want to try to see if I can make the, the argument in a compelling way. So I do mean like kind of shedding of individuality, but we can also think about that as being liberated from the constraints of the individuality and identity impressed upon us by racist, patriarchal, capitalist society. Right? We can be liberated from those constraints. Right? We can have another form of relation to one another politically that's not determined by those constraints. And it seems like that this happened, actually, in the DSA convention. I was seeing some of those videos that were circulating on primarily like right-wing media, um, the clips from people always asking point of personal privilege and this stuff. And there was, you know, as you remember, right-wing media was kind of laughing at this. But there was something really powerful. And one of the DSA members said to people, please don't use gendered language, say comrade. And it was sort of so wonderful that here is a term, available term, that's going to liberate everyone from the constraints of gendered identity and presupposed, pre-given capitalist identities. So the shedding is also a liberation. I'm speaking with Judy Dean, author of Comrade, just out from Verso. As you say, I think um, anyone could be a comrade, but not everyone could be a comrade. Yeah. It's, it's a matter of taking sides. So you're, you're joined by a common struggle. Right. Yeah. Not everyone can be a comrade. People who are not your comrades are not your enemies, right? They might be your cousin. They might be a good friend. Um, it just means that politically, you, don't, you can't expect the same things from them as you can from one of your comrades. And you list some features of the comrade or the comradely relation. Discipline, joy, enthusiasm, and courage. Talk about these. Discipline. Okay, so you already mentioned that the shedding of individuality that's required of comradeship is not easy, right? It's a practice. It's a practice of discipline. So as an individual, I might think, oh, my God, I cannot bear to go to yet another meeting this week. But if I don't, I let down my comrades, right? I mean, I'm expected as a member of the group to go to this. So I have to have the discipline to show up, to do the work. I've got to have the discipline to put my own desires or will aside. And that's hard, right? It's not, it's not like this is just like always a walk in the park. 
it takes practice. It happens over time and we often miss up. So the joy is sort of this great element when you're um, all together and you see the effects that you have, like how much power you have that's so far beyond what you would have ever had as individuals, that leads to this sort of great feeling of joy. And it's also present, like people who see the comrades do things, people who witness like the achievements of a really disciplined revolutionary organization, they also can feel that joy, right? They can experience that sense of like, wow, right? That was really something that happened. Enthusiasm is not quite the same as joy. I almost wish I'd used the word energy, but I went with enthusiasm. But it really means continuing to do the work, right? On and on and doing it and like doing it with a degree of like intensity and and bringing that kind of, um, like Lennon's always praising his comrades as like having their unflagging energy, their ceaseless and boundless enthusiasm. It's funny. I remember in my days on the right, we were very contemptuous of enthusiasms and enthusiasts. It was a way of mocking people for uh, their excesses then that makes me feel very good about choosing that term. Because, <laughs> um, and then the, um, the last one is courage, right? Because it can be very difficult to stand up for something politically by yourself, right? Particularly if you're doing it not just on social media, but you're going out and seeing people face to face or confronting power and having comrades together builds a kind of courage. Each person has a courage that they would lack before. We would not put any of those together with the ally, right? We don't think of allies as approaching things with any sort of discipline, courage, joy, or enthusiasm, right? Allies are basically just psychologically trying to not offend someone and maybe, you know, show a little support, but, but that's the best we can expect. Writers like Adorno, and this is in Marx too, uh, looked at the, the development of a rich individuality that's promised by bourgeois society, um, but they saw this, this promise blocked by the demands of accumulation, the subordination of everything to economic compulsion to be productive. Courage is a real a conformity and a suppression of individuality. The figure of the comrade, though, requires monkish renunciation of individuality, which is the opposite of a prefiguration of what many of us imagine a communist society should offer. Uh, true development of that rich individuality. You um, write about Plotinov's uh, novel Chebengur, is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah. Uh -huh. That envisions a community of comrades as essentially a homeless encampment. People are joined together by destitution and lack, where all they have is the potential for comradeship. To be honest, that sounds grim and deeply unappealing. How do you frame the appeal <laughs> of comradeship to people formed under bourgeois individualism, however counterfeit that is, or even to those looking forward to some kind of utopic, real flowering of individualism? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's fair that that seems um, that it's hard to sell destitution and lack. Um, <laughs> so let me try this a couple of ways. First, I'm, I'm going to nitpick. I don't think it's monkish. Right. In fact, it's a way of recognizing that there are forms of interpersonal fulfillment that are much, much richer than the mutual performance of your own uniqueness. And that the kinds of fulfillment that comes from having a political goal and working together to achieve it are forms that um, bourgeois society tries to extinguish. Recognizing a different model of Fulfillment is a plus. Second, the um, the Chevengor part was you know, so. This is this novel by Platonov that I read, and I, I'm emphasizing that to try to bring out the fact that there is a kind of zero level of commitment that's possible. That if we're going to get communism, we are going to have to give up property, right? We are going to have to see our relations with other people as the most important thing. Our connection with one another is more important than property. Part of the argument there is just trying to bring out this negativity of erasing everything but our connection with others. So that's the kind of the theoretical purchase of the argument. It's different from this prefiguration though, because I think I just I think that the, the whole approach of prefiguration I think is politically wrong, right? There is a difference between fighting for a in a political struggle and trying to to um, affect political change than living in the world brought about by that change. And I think we've got to stop thinking that the politics that we use to fight is the same as the politics in the world 
that comes after the fight. I don't know why the, the, um, the left keeps thinking that the way we fight has to be the same as the shape of the world we create. I don't think that's the same thing. We fight politically, we are achieving a new goal, and then we will live differently after we have that goal achieved. Well, I think the argument would be that the fight uh, and the social formations created during the fight and the psychology uh, that is shaped by those formations leaves you very unprepared for the alleged utopia that you're going to arrive at. It just leaves you very distorted. You're just so distorted by the battle that um, the achievement then is um, poisoned by um, the means that got you there. It seems to me that we were going to need to be disciplined, enthusiastic, will need courage and joy even in the new world. And that as we cultivate those kinds of attributes in our comradely relations, then we will be better suited for building something else. And those attributes are not the same as a kind of I mean, monkish destitution and total lack, but give us something different. You mentioned that the McCarthyites uh, invoked uh, the... Uh what you call the machinic impersonality and fungibility of comrades, that uh, it's a totalitarian subordination of the self to a common will. And I don't think you have to be McCarthyite, though, to be put off by that. Well, how do you deal with the fact that I think a lot of people would find this idea of renunciation and subordination very unappealing? We know we talked a little while ago about these other relations that comradeship is not, right? It's not the same as, as friend, kinship, or family, neighbors, or citizen. It also doesn't mean, though, that comradeship erases those. Those kinds of relations still exist. They are just not the same as our relation of our political relation of being on the same side. So that I am a cog in my party and a cog in the political struggle does not mean I'm a robot in a cog at home, does not mean I'm a robot in a cog you know, in my family or with my neighbors, right? So it's like there's politics and the political fight, and that's where I have to put my own self-interest aside for the sake of the common struggle if we're going to get anything done. And then in other parts of my life, other things can come out. So it's not that this kind of interchangeability or fungibility goes through every single dimension of one's life. It's the characteristic of being on the same side of a political struggle. I have to say, you don't seem very machinic or um, cog-like to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's because we're friends as well as comrades. Uh, yes. Another thing uh, that might put people off is there's a lot of work involved here. There's a lot of folks on the left who are really anti-work and think it, it stinks and we need to avoid it or transcend it. Uh, but it does take a lot of work. Oh, my God, it takes so much work. I am obviously not a post-work person. I think that's, I don't even find that appealing. I, yeah, I don't even find it appealing. And I don't even get how it would work. <laughs> I don't get that either. It doesn't strike me as even a hypothetical, it doesn't even strike me as a hypothetical, useful for thinking about politics, political struggle, or a utopian future, right? Because we will always have to, we have to eat we have relations, we have, you know, there's other people in the world. And um, all of these things involve sorts of tasks. I mean, if we want to think that when they say post-work, they mean post-exploitation, okay, but I actually think they mean something that they're trying to rely on something that's not even just post-exploitation, that, that somehow most everything will be done for us. And so we don't have to, we can have a, a imaginary of a world where with 23 hours a day of free time. And yeah, I, we, we cash our UBI check and just hang out at the cafe. Oh, my God. Like, this is sort of horrible. And then I wonder, like, well, then who's working at the cafe, right? Who grew the coffee? It's not a, a, a vision of a world, right? It's a world of angels. Um, we have, there, there will be work, and that's good. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, finally, can there be a comrade uh, without a party? Oh, um, I love that question. George Orwell talks about the comradeship that um, grew up in the anarchist communities during the um, um, Spanish Civil War. And many of his descriptions are a lot like what you see, say, in Kollontai's writing, um, Alexander Kollontai's Bolshevik writing, which gives a sense like there are forms of comradeship that are parts of 
you know, being on the same political side that are not mediated by a party. But I would say they were mediated by the exigencies of that immediate political situation. So I would, as a kind of technical answer, I would say yes. I'm not sure how much that kind of comradeship can extend in scale, right? It seems like it tends to be really limited by the situation. So we might say like during Occupy, I would bet that folks could describe some of the relations that grew up during Occupy as comradely relations with the work, with the discipline, with the joy and the courage. But that after Occupy fell apart, those comradely relations did as well. And what I think with the party is that you get a form through which comradely relations can be extended. So institutionalizing the social foundations of comradeship. Yeah, exactly. That was Jody Dean, author of Comrade, an essay on political belonging, published by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Not, released a couple of months ago by Big Thief. Till next week, bye. <laughs>